Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. You are listening to episode 306 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about some of the most common problems men experience related to the sexual functioning. My guest is Dr. Susie Gronsky. She's a licensed doctor of physical therapy. We're going to talk about what we see in our practices and how we often help people. But before I tell you all about our episode today, I wanted to personally invite you to enroll for my upcoming workshop, Seven Tactics for Achieving Optimal Performance Without Medication. I launched this workshop a couple months ago and it was a huge, we had a huge success. I tried to cover everything you would need as a penis owner in a relationship. In this workshop, I'm going to talk about seven psychologist proven techniques that will help your partner go wild with or without an erection. We're going to talk about the building blocks for getting and maintaining a firm erection we're going to teach you the tactics that you would need to feel in control and be able to control when you're experiencing an ejaculation. You're going to get some workbooks. You're going to have an opportunity to ask your questions live from me, or you can just watch the recorded video. I'll make sure I'll answer every single question that people send me for this workshop. As I mentioned today, we're going to talk about male sexual health functioning. Dr. Susie and I, we're going to talk about the, some of the common challenges for penis owners and how we're treating them. We're going to talk about low desire. We're going to talk about erectile worries and all the questions that you might have in your mind if you are in a relationship with a man or you have a penis. Specializing in men's pelvic and sexual health, Susie Gronsky is a licensed doctor of physical therapy, certified pelvic rehabilitation practitioner, ASAC certified sexuality educator, sexuality counselor, and international teacher, and author of Pelvic Pain, The Ultimate Cock Block. Learn more by visiting drsusieg.com. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Susie Gronsky. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Textology Podcast. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Susie Gronsky to our show. Dr. Susie, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Well, I am very excited about this conversation. I know that many of my clients are penis owners and they have tons of challenges around sexual health. So they always ask me to kind of do more of the content around that topic. And I saw that you had a YouTube channel as well and you post on psychology. They say you're very prolific. So it's like, let's, let's make sure we're getting Dr. <laughs> Susie on our show. So tell me, how did you get interested in this field? So I got interested in specializing in pelvic and sexual health for men over a decade ago when I noticed that there was a big gap in the services that are being offered and the spaces being offered to support men who are struggling with pelvic health and sexual health concerns. And this is outside of the traditional blue pill approach or solution method, right? 
So, and, and on top of that, sex in general is a very vulnerable and uncomfortable topic for many of us to, to bring into a clinical space. And it's much easier to just do the physical act than it is to actually have conversation around our sexuality. So for me, I find it very empowering to help men connect with their sexual voices in ways that are not so penis centric and in ways that embrace the pleasure approach rather than a performance focused approach. And that is the key for many, many penis owners, men kind of having a successful, satisfying sexual experiences all throughout their life. Because I have sometimes a clients that they're very conditioned to think about great sex is about having a hard penis, doing like this kind of very predictable kind of a script and needs to function a certain way. And if this is not working this way, then perhaps there is something wrong with me or I can't have the sex life that I that I want. So I appreciate that you, you kind of emphasize more on pleasure versus performance. And like, if I were honest, many of my female clients in a heterosexual kind of dynamic, they're just so tired of that script. <laughs> they're bored, mm-hmm. uninspired. Like even if you have the firm penis functioning and if you're doing the same thing over and over for decades it's then you, your partner might enjoy something different exactly and really this what we're talking about is just expanding our sexual portfolios and the sexual narrative and not following these stereotypical s- sexual scripts that we're often taught to follow and that brings me to talk about sexual health education in general, which is sorely lacking in this in this in this country, at least in the United States. It doesn't even have to be medically accurate in in most states. So you know, we're not talking about sex, and certainly, you know, how could we expect people to feel comfortable around having sexual dialogue or expressing their sexual needs when we're actually often told to repress them? And you know, the pressure to perform around men, I feel like there's also this gap of understanding even just female anatomy and understanding that most women do not orgasm from penet- from penetrate vaginal penetration where in fact upwards of 90 some percent of women need clitoral stimulation to get off and that in itself is is sexually liberating because so many men are often like I gotta I gotta stay harder longer can't come too soon thrusting putting so much energy into thrusting making sure they have a firm and hard erection the entire time and it it really is not as satisfying for their partner who is FEMA identified in that dynamic so men can take a breath <laughs> <laughs> and that is so true and what's interesting is sometimes I tell the story that many years ago I had this this guy that came to me because he wanted to last longer and his kind of like fixation was of like you know like I need to be able to maintain my erection not come too quickly so my partner is able to orgasm and it was kind of creating rupture in the relationship and I was like therapist number four I was like okay like out of desperation like tell me what you do <laughs> walk me through what you do uh-huh. and what we discovered that he didn't know about the importance of clitoris and he was completely ignoring clit and with a little bit of love and affection for the clit and stimulation, the problem was solved. <laughs> we had one more session after that. It was so happy. Simple. And that was good. <laughs> exactly. You know, we often try to overcomplicate things when in fact it's the simple 
topics and concepts that were often not taught. So we really can't blame anyone for not knowing these things when we're really not talking about it. So the fact that you and I are having this conversation, I think helps to help others lean into these spaces that are rather uncomfortable. Absolutely. So tell me in, in your practice, when it comes to penis owners, what are some of the challenges that they, they are coming to you for those to get treatment? Yeah, so the common challenges for penis owner that that I treat in my practice as a pelvic health therapist and also as a sexuality counselor and educator, the first one being sexual pain. So this could be pain with an erection, pain with or after ejaculation, pain with anal play or insertion, genital pain that persists outside of the sexual context. So it could be anywhere on the penis or the glands, testicular pain or the area in between the scrotum and the anus, or actually rectal pain. There's also a prostate pain syndromes. It's often commonly known as chronic prostatitis. This is a big, big misnomer and a misdiagnosis. A lot of the evidence and research is encouraging providers to move away from chronic prostatitis as being the diagnosis for any pelvic pain that a man may experience because most pelvic pain experiences for men have nothing to do with an infection or a pathology. So so, so I, I use the word prostate pain syndrome, and that falls under the category, of course, of chronic pelvic pain syndrome, which often a lot of these pain syndromes will fall under this broad umbrella of a, of a diagnosis or category of pain, which is persisting pain in structures related to the pelvis or genitals that last greater than three to six months, and it is not known to be caused by an infection or a, a pathology. It often is associated with negative cognitive, behavioral, sexual, and emotional consequences, as well as lower urinary tract symptoms, which may include things like urinary urgency or frequency, sexual, bowel, and pelvic floor dysfunction. Other challenges that I see as well in my practice include erectile difficulties, ejaculatory control issues, sexual recovery, post-prostate cancer treatment. Awesome. So you cover a whole range of different things. And I know for most people, they, they only think about pain for men. They think mostly infection or like some cancer treatment or nerve damage. What are some of the possible other reasons that can lead to someone experiencing pain during sex or like outside the sexual context or in their pelvic area or in their penis? Well, we really don't have like a single known factor that is the cause. It actually is a, a diagnosis of exclusion when we talk about chronic pelvic pain syndrome. So it's often ruling out any potential red flags like you just mentioned, cancer, pathology, infection. And often with these cases, there isn't anything that is showing up on a diagnostic test or scan which also makes this quite of a, a clinical enigma. In general, though, with contemporary neuroscience uh, around pain, we know that pain is multifactorial. It's a subjective experience that has many factors that can contribute to it, not just biological factors, but we also have to consider the whole person, their psychology, social cultural factors, interpersonal factors that surround that context of pain. So when we 
talk about pain or when I talk about pain with people, it's, it's mind with body and body with mind. And context plays a really huge role in this. And certainly with sexual pain, you have a part of, of an experience and a part of your body that in general has an experience of pleasure and positive consequence. But for, let's say, a reason of maybe there is some tissue irritation or trauma that happens during a sexual experience and where the nerves get aggravated or the tissues get aggravated in some way, then that can be a very distressing event for that individual, especially if they don't have the knowledge or the understanding of the these pain processes and that that this is not permanent and recovery is possible. So it's it's a really big conversation <laughs> that, that we probably need a lot more time to cover, but it is pain in itself is multifactorial. There are many things that can cause it, but that just means that there are many ways to dial down this protective state that we call pain and also overprotection. So well that that is very helpful for people to know that sometimes people when there's like a pain, they feel invalidated because they're kind of their doctor cannot identify what is the specific challenge that they have. And at times they hear this in your mind and in, when they're in reality, they experience mm-hmm. it. Most people, when they think about pain for penis owners, they think about whether they can break their penis or not. <laughs> is that true that you can break your penis? <laughs> well, anatomically, the penis organ itself does not have a bone in it. It's soft tissue. So it, it's a tissue that is flexible and pliable, but it does also has connective tissue around it. So in these cases of penile fracture, for example, uh, it's often a situation where there's too much too soon of tissue demand being placed or demands being placed on the penile tissues in that moment. So an example of this might be, let's say it, this is a straddle forward position where the partner is on top. I will let's just say that this is a female partner on top of a penis. And if the angle of that erection, so the erection is rigid, firm, tissues are already stretched and there's already pressure to begin with. And there's a quick movement or jerkiness with that erection or that penile tissue away from the body. So you're changing the angle that in itself might cause connective tissue damage around what we would call the tunica albiginia, which is the connective tissue that wraps around the erectile tissue that that could get injured. And there's also a ligament called the suspensory ligament of the penis that attaches from the base of the penis on top to the actual pubic bone to help with rigidity, support and structure of an erect penis that also can get injured in situations such as that that I'm describing. So it doesn't necessarily fracture per se like a bone would fracture, but you do get tissue injury that can happen and tissues do heal. So (laughs) that's a good news. Please, (laughs) You just can imagine you have to give it a rest and then it's going to repair itself. (laughs) Hopefully. Yes, hopefully. And sometimes you do need medical emergency care where that tissue needs to be repaired. But again, that once that tissue is repaired and you go through a rehab process, things should be just fine. All right. So one, one other thing that I wonder is about sexual desire and low desire in men. And that is something that tends to be complicated. And I look into the research and kind of all the things that can contribute to someone having low desire. And I see it in my practice. So I want to hear your thoughts about 
what are some of the factors that might lead to someone having low desire? Yeah, so it is common for men to struggle with low sexual desire. And some of the contributing factors might include a mismatch of sexual preferences, including frequency between partnered relationships, and also sexual preferences as far as sexual activities and what is yummy for that person or erotic uh, for that person to engage in. Low hormone levels is another contributing factor. Chronic illness and pain, like we just mentioned, certainly if something is hurting, if an organ or a part of your body is you're used to experiencing pleasure now hurts, well, that certainly is going to diminish the sexual appetite to want to participate in activity that hurts. Medications like antidepressants, mental health conditions like depression, dissatisfaction with the current sexual routine, you know, finding couples often find themselves in a rut or doing the same thing over and over again. And what we know about sexual motivation and appetite, there's also this responsivity, a response to being hungry to participate in a sexual activity. So this response of desire uh, is often not talked about as well in these kinds of conversations of, well, if I wasn't hungry to begin with, but somebody walks in with my favorite food, all of a sudden, I actually might find myself really wanting to um, have a bite. And so it's a very similar uh, conversation around this response of desire for both men and women. If there's a difficulty in sexual functioning too, so if there is a challenge with sexual functioning, for example, worry around having erections or being able to maintain an erection, that in itself may contribute to this loss of desire or willingness to participate in sexual activity. If there's relationship conflict, vulnerabilities also around sex, for example, emotional closeness, adverse sexual experiences or adverse relational experiences might also contribute to this um, conversation around low sexual desire. We already talked about anxiety and the pressure to perform. And then the practical things like schedules, privacy, and again, energy to be able to participate in, in sex, you know, because sex is a contact sport. It does require, you know, a level of capacity, willingness, and energy to participate. And if you're tired, if you're overworked, if you're stressed, you know, family dynamics uh, and family responsibilities and roles, all of these things in our life are going to compete for our energy. And so it's how much bandwidth do we have to participate for other things? And sometimes we find ourselves participating in life's everyday activities and we forget to make time and space and energy for our sexual appetite. Other factors to consider in general, though, we're talking about low sexual desire for men is the natural preferences and just a natural wiring and predispositions for for men's sexual appetite. There's I, I challenge people often about this myth that men should have a higher sex drive than women or are expected, right, to have a higher sex drive than women. But the research that's done around this, it's often done in isolation, only comparing one group um, and often not partnered. So it's men or women and, and their individual experiences with their perceived level of sexual desire. 
the studies that have been conducted where, where they have been partnered, where you get to compare their partner's perceived level of sexual desire for one another, we see that men are norm, no more likely or less likely to have a higher sexual desire. And many will report often no sexual discrepancy when they're being compared to their partner's perceived sexual desire of, of one another. So something to just food for thought as far as this concept of sexual desire, because we really don't have any norm normative data to go off of, of, of when, at what point does it become low, low sexual desire? And are we, are we creating a dysfunction that really isn't there? I agree with you. And, and at times I have clients that they get in a kind of heterosexual relationship or a kind of like same sex experiences when they partner have less appetite. They feel that, oh God, there's something wrong with me. They don't desire me. But in reality, that like our attraction toward our partner could be a small fraction of what might happening or one of the, I don't know, hundreds of contributing factors. Like a person, as you mentioned, might have high stress. The, the issue might be kind of their overall health. The issue could be kind of like physiological challenges that they have, hormonal imbalance, all sorts of things, like so, uh, kind of their self-image. So it's at times it's, I find it like reductionistic that people have these like a blanket statement that women don't want sex, men have higher sex drives. And if your partner is not initiating and there's something wrong with you. Right, right. And and really there might be nothing wrong with you. You know, everyone has their preferences and, and we evolve as people over time to, you know, where our life, where, where our relationships are and where our individual, where we're individually at in our spaces and time evolve over time. So it's understanding that things change and that maybe this is just a natural, normal occurrence to being human in this body, in this life. <laughs> And that it doesn't have to be pathological because that just adds more stress and pressure and distance. It, it almost kind of makes the situation worse when we start to put like labels, negative labels on things that are actually just natural, normal, common occurrences. I agree with you. And I think uh, the other very common challenge that I hear that people think that when they're struggling, they're the only one is erectile functioning challenges. And I, I often find that even on labeling it, people are mislabeling it a lot. Sometimes people have erectile unpredictability and they think, oh my God, I have erectile dysfunction. I'm broken. So I'm kind of curious, how do you define erectile dysfunction? So erectile dysfunction is can be considered a re, it's the recurrent inability to get or maintain an erection that's sufficient enough for sexual activity, which is mostly associated with intercourse. It's a conversation around intercourse. But it's also coupled with distress from the person experiencing this perceived difficulty and or their partner. So I'm often asking people, you know, who is this situation distressing for? At one point, did it become distressing for you and or for your relationship or partner or partners? I like that you mentioned that this erectile unpredictability because men, it's not uncommon for men to experience 
occasional erectile failure or unpredictability. I think failure is a big uh, word <laughs> that has a lot of connotation, but I like what you said, unpredictability from time to time. So that's not uncommon to not to have your erection wax and wane or not be able to have an erection during a, a sexual encounter. Now, there could be many factors that are that, that cause that, right? Particularly, especially if you're in a situation where emotional connection and being able to trust that person and know that they have your back is really important to you as, as a sexual being. So of course, it's going to be a little challenging and intimidating to maintain and sustain an erection in that moment in time until that trust is built. So there's a, there's a very well-known sex therapist and author named Dr. Barry McCarthy. And he, he actually stated this, that between the ages of 30 and 55, 90% of males have experienced at least one erectile difficulty of not being able to maintain or sustain an erection sufficient for intercourse. But he stresses that this is a normal occurrence and it's not a sign of erectile dysfunction. I agree with you. And I think the stories that we tell ourselves when we have uh, things are not working the way we want, especially if we don't have a kind of information from other people that, that that's the experience that they had. And all of a sudden you start avoiding sex. All of a sudden you're kind of like doubting yourself and that on its own can turn to a, a vicious cycle. And at times I hear with people that they say, of course, there are kind of psychological component, physiological component, and people talk about Kegel exercises. So I hear like different things about Kegel exercises and how useful it is. And I heard you talked about it. So tell us what is, what, what would be, is it helpful? Is it not helpful? Enlighten us. <laughs> This is a great question because there's an overemphasis placed on on Kegels, to be honest, and not everyone needs to do them. In fact, if it's not broke, don't fix it kind of mentality, which is true. So so it's it's really not if it's a true deficit in strength, you know, like just like any other muscle in your body, if if you if 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 it's weak, you want to strengthen it. And and certainly being able to assess what well what does it mean for the for the pelvic muscles to be to be weak, which is often very rare honestly, especially for men unless there's other contributing factors such as, you know, if they had a prostatectomy or if there was any surgical pelvic surgery or low back surgery that may have impacted muscle, nerves, vasculature to the area, then penile rehab and, and doing pelvic floor exercises might be very beneficial. But with erectile difficulties, certainly as we age in general, our bodies change and we have to put in a little bit more effort to sustain a level of function. And so this then comes, this also applies to the pelvic floor, or the pelvic muscles, because you do have muscles that wrap around the penis that help with maintaining or getting an erection, but also sustaining that erection. But it's not the only player in that dynamic. It's just one part of, of, of the pie. What I notice in my practice is that when there is erectile difficulty, that men are often overexerting their effort in, in order to try to keep that erection or to force an erection to happen, which means they're, they're really actually fatiguing, physically fatiguing their bodies or fatiguing 
fatiguing their pelvic muscles, squeezing so hard, trying really hard, thinking that that's going to help with their erection, when in fact, it actually is counterproductive to the outcomes that they're actually looking to get. So it really, my answer to that in summary is it depends on the person and getting certainly an individualistic uh, evaluation of their pelvic floor function. And not to overemphasize the squeezing part for the Kegel, but rather a coordination of muscle function and utilizing full range of motion. It's the squeeze and the release that matters. And when you're in a sexual encounter, you should not have to worry or think about your pelvic floor muscles or doing Kegels because that part of your body reflexively naturally does that. So again, I think it's too, a, a situation of too much effort being applied around the emphasis to perform rather than getting in a more relaxed approach around one's sexual experiences, being open to pleasure and, 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 and absorbing yourself in that experience rather than thinking that your penis is some sort of machine that is separate from you as a whole person. Amazing explanation because I, I also hear that like everyone think uh, like the Kegel is not working. You're doing it wrong, right? Like maybe, <laughs> but it can't be the only tool. So I think people have extremely high expectation around that. Have you heard about reverse Kegel? I think that's something else that people are talking about. It, I have. And again, that, what, what that is, is if you've ever had a bowel movement, you've done a reverse Kegel. If you've ever let out a fart, you've done a reverse Kegel. So it's, it's, it's a, just a tool or a trick, again, around muscle coordination and neuromotor control, really depending on the purpose and focus of that. So if somebody's having difficulty letting go, or relaxing their pelvic floor muscles when they're trying to have a bowel movement and they maybe have constipation or pain uh, when they're having a bowel movement or even pain with anal penetration or anal play, right? This is an appropriate tool that might be used to help create expansion and relaxation of the pelvis rather than contraction. But we want to focus on both, you know, so it's not either or, it's really about finding a nice balance. Great. You're wealth of great information. So now that we know that Kegel is one of the tools, what are some of the tools that people can look into practice for having a firmer erection? So they have, they get an erection, but it's not firm enough, enough in their mindset. <laughs> right. So exactly. So first, the, you know, this is to, to emphasize here again, that what I, what I would like penis owners to know is that it's, it's completely normal for your erection to wax and wane throughout the entire sexual encounter. And to expect a rock hard erection the entire time is really unrealistic because there's so many contextual cues and dynamics in that, or in dynamic to account for and variability in that situation that, you know, that can shift your level of arousal. So arousal waxes and wanes too, and that subjective arousal, which includes also level of genital arousal. So erection fluctuations are normal and they happen. So that being said, there are a couple of, of tips and tricks in my toolbox that I do recommend to clients to help with maybe even just overall confidence if the goal is to have penetrative intercourse course, let's say 
for example, um, you know, for fertility purposes, or just again to re- to regain a certain level of function. I do encourage clients to embody physiological relaxation techniques. When your mind is relaxed, your body can relax, and your erections will be firmer. When we're worried or stressed about losing or being able to get an erection, the the brain is a very powerful organ. The main, the most, the most important organ when it comes to sex is the one between your ears, and that's that brain. But it can actually inhibit or stop the physiological processes of around an erection. It actually will cause your arteries in the penis to constrict rather than dilate. So it's important to get into a relaxed state of mind and have a little bit of mental flexibility around your sexual experiences. Because as I said, you cannot force an erection to happen. And then shifting the mindset around performance to pleasure-based experiences around sex. So breathing practices can be very helpful. Mindfulness practices can be very helpful. Slowing down and having fun. You know, if we can add some fun and playfulness in our sexual encounters, whether solo or partner, then that takes again the pressure off to perform, which will truly allow you your body to do what it naturally does. Another strategy that might seem very radical, maybe, is getting encouraging men to get acquainted with their soft penis. Because there's this emphasis over stimulating a firm penis, a rock hard penis. But what about stimulating soft penis? So pleasuring the soft penis allows that person to appreciate the diversity of sensation that their penis has to offer in all contexts. And and as I said, there's often this overemphasis on a firm penis and pleasuring a firm, firm penis, thinking that a flaccid penis or a soft penis is not pleasurable. So in this self-discovery exercise, the, the idea is not to pleasure your penis to get an erection or to come, but rather it is to experience the many nuances of, uh, of an erection and your penis uh, when it's soft. And you may, you may start to get blood flow getting, going into your penis. But again, the goal there with this exercise is to expand your sensory landscape and your connection with your penis other than associating it with just firm and that's what pleasure means. So I I'm, I challenge men to really try this one out. You'll be, you might be surprised with what you discover. And the last strategy, which has many strategies in it, in itself, is finding ways to expand your sexual portfolio or your sexual menu. So for example, this could be sensory play to enhance your subjective and genital arousal. And this means finding creative ways to include all of your senses in your sexual experiences because visual cues, smell, taste, sound, touch, all of those can enhance our perceived level of arousal, which will then translate into a physiological response because it's it's both together, two sides of the same coin. So I encourage people to use or to expand their sexual menu and also think about sexual resources like vibrators. Vibrate Vibrators are not just for women, but men find them very, very stimulating and pleasurable as far as sensory play goes. 
So those are some helpful hints as far as or tips that I can offer for folks who are looking to enhance their sexual experience. I love it. And I think the last one is all are great. But the last one is the one that I feel people are not giving it enough attention, right? People think about, okay, I have to fix it. I have to make it firm. And that's that's where it, it, it is. But if your goal is to have satisfying experiences, I can almost guarantee that if you are inviting other things into the bedroom with your long-term lover or partner, that will make things more exciting and more satisfying because it gives you an opportunity to meet a part of your partner that you haven't met before in a way. Like you see them in this new erotically charged situation. If you're doing the same script, you know almost exactly when your partner starts to moan. <laughs> when they exactly. finish and like there's no surprise so let's let's change things up Exactly. You know, right. It's a rut that people find themselves in the same old routine. And it's like having the same meal, right? In the beginning, you might be like, oh, this is new. You go to a new restaurant, you have a wonderful entree. You're like, this is great. I really love this. But what would happen if you had that same dish every day in the same way? I mean, you would get eventually you get very bored of it. And it, it and, and that experience, that inten- intensity around that experience is going to wane. And so really, it's about how do we things up? How do we change things up and become play, you know, play? Often as adults, we forget that we can still play and we can have fun with each other and we can explore and connect with each other, not just sexually, but even just spending quality time and emotionally connect with the person that you're with is going to tremendously enhance your sexual connection and intimacy in, in that situation too. So, Well, I could talk to you about this. Like we are aligned for hours, <laughs> but I noticed that we are toward the end of our time. <laughs> so tell us if people want to get a hold of you, what are some of the places that they can find you? Yeah, so my website is drsuzyg.com. That's D-R-S-U-S-I-E-G.com. I have a YouTube channel, Dr. Susie Gronsky, and I also am... I'm on Instagram at Dr. Susie G as well. Amazing. The resources, a link to them going to be on the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on this show and being so generous with sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you so much for listening to this episode today. If you have any type of sexual health challenging, please send us an email. I think so far we covered the whole range of challenges for male and female sexual functioning. But if there's anything specific that's in your mind and we haven't talked about it, feel free to send us some suggestions. At the end, I wanted to remind you that if you haven't secured your spot for our upcoming workshop, make sure that you are signing up today. The spot is limited. I know it's hard to talk about sexual health, so I make sure that I keep the classes small. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and I'll see you next week right here. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.